How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context, Episode 6 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times. If you've been enjoying this series or listening for a while, would you consider going to our website and making a donation to help offset the cost of our production? You may know this, but we are fully funded by listeners like you and continue to be humbled by folks' generosity to keep us in operation. So thanks for considering giving to our ministry. Now, in this episode, Michael teaches from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. Thinking tonight in 1 Peter about really two terms and a phrase, a life of hope, a life of holiness, and then kind of the question, how do we live with fear and faith? What Peter's doing in this section is he's talking about a hope that we have a life of holiness that we are to be about. And then the, the, set, the section winds up with this interesting parallel of living with fear, yet living with faith. So if you have your Bible, we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to begin with. And before I read that, I'll just, just ask you to think through, what, in what do you hope? What are the things, the events, the markers in your life that you hope? If I put this out there, I plan this goal, I get there, I hope in this thing. Maybe it's a job. Amount of money, a career, number of children, maybe it's uh, surviving medical treatments, maybe, who knows, what, what are you hoping in? What's that thing out there that's the carrot, so to speak? Um, and then how do you think about being holy? What does it mean to be holy? That's a strange term. It's just one of those religious words that we don't quite know what to do with, right? Well, this passage addresses these, and I was refreshed and reminded and learned new things when I was studying it, so I hope maybe it'll be insightful to you as well. Um, one thing that happens in the, in the way Peter writes his letters, now he changes to an instruction mode. Uh, the first 12 verses, we'll just call it his doxology. That's a good way to sum it up. But now he's going to go into an instruction mode. And in verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we go to this instruction command. You can feel it right away. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. So the first is he's going to explain a life of hope in verse 13. What does it mean to live a life of hope? Remember, this is the diaspora. They're dispersed. They're confused. They're afraid. They are living in a land that's not home. Keep that in mind. He's given them that high view of Christ and their salvation. Now he says, therefore, prepare your mind for action. How do you live once you know Christ is resurrected, once you know the prophets looked forward to something they didn't see, we look back and saw the person of Jesus Christ, the life, death, burial, resurrection. He was an eyewitness. Now, how do you live with hope? And the way he explains this is there's essentially two exhortations in this first part. The first is prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind for action. It's an okay translation. Our English Bibles have a hard time with phraseology and idioms sometimes. Most Bibles came to something like that, prepare your mind for action. The King James reads, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a little more closer to what it actually meant. Uh, Translation is a funny business because idioms and expressions and metaphors don't always, it's not just vocabulary that's translated from Hebrew to English in this case, or Greek to English in this case. And so these expressions and idioms sometimes fail because we don't have the, the nomenclature, the syntax for how you bring it in. The first century reader would hear gird up in a unique way. Now, this is an unusual term. I don't want to get bogged down too much, but it really, the word is really having girded. Little detail here, but having girded, having girded. So you know the story. In the first century, uh, most everyone wore a longer outer garment, like a robe. And they would have a belt of some kind. 
very, you know, depicted all the time in Middle Eastern, any Jesus movie you've seen. Uh, so when you gird your loins, there were lots of ways to do it. The bottom line was you were hiking up your skirt and you were tucking it in your belt. And you did that for running, for getting in the water, dealing with fish and nets, for fighting. And that imagery is, you know, we'd say roll up your shirt sleeves. Everyone would know what that meant. Roll up. If you're going to change a tire, you roll up your shirt sleeves. You tuck your tie. And if you wear a tie, if you don't, good for you. Uh, but there's certain metaphors we understand. Um, so this prepare your mind for action comes a long way from having girded your mind is what P- Peter is really saying. Now, what's more important than even that imagery, which I think is fun, is you have to go back to Exodus chapter 12. This is the first time we see this language used in Scripture. Now you shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat in haste, for it's the Lord's Passover. And you know that story. There were the 12 plagues. The final one was the uh, death of the firstborn. All Egypt and Israel, they would lose their firstborn animal, firstborn child, firstborn anything if they didn't have the Passover blood on the doorposts and lentils. And then they were there was a, a a meal they had to prepare in haste, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, you know the story. And this was the, the, the instruction was, okay, you be ready to go. Because when this happens, when the angel of wrath comes through and starts killing the firstborn, it's your ticket out, guys. And you don't want to be tripping on your stuff. You want to be ready. You're going to travel light. You're going to get out of Egypt because I'm going to bring you out. So the Old Testament image is coming back, and Peter knew this, and the Jewish audience that was part of this dispersion knew this, Having girded your, the loins of your mind. Now what Peter does here is he makes a parallel of loin with your brain. So you're girding, you're having already done this, your mind. It's a very interesting metaphor. In fact, no other New Testament author kind of puts it together the way Peter does in this passage. Um, loins of your mind is a very interesting parallel. Uh, loins can mean strength, but they can also mean vulnerability. Your loins are a vulnerable area. If you're in a battle and your loin is hit with a blade, you're going to bleed out. So it's an area of strength, but it's also an area of vulnerability. And he's saying, having girded this strength and vulnerable part of your life, your mind, you're prepared for action. Let's step back on what he's saying here. This is a life of hope. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope is the primary emphasis of the verse. Keep your hope on the grace that we're talking about this in a minute. So you've got to be undergirded, wrapped up, this Old Testament energy, ready to go. But Peter twists the nuance just a little bit and says, I want you to gird your thoughts, gird your mind, gird the way you view things um, before you go out. Um, not long ago, I was in a, a wedding, officiating a wedding. And of course, when the, the wedding dress is long, and the bride goes up or down the steps, what has to happen? She's got to pull it up, or the bridesmaid's got to help her. And I thought it was a pretty good picture, because she's girded. She can't run. Uh, she can't move quickly. The worst thing you want to do is fall or trip at your wedding, right? Up or down the steps. That's your greatest fear, probably. And uh, so it's sort of a good picture. You're girded with this very elaborate, probably the most expensive dress you may ever wear. And you're going to an event, a wedding, your wedding, you're the bride, and you want it to go well. And we all see pictures where the bride is getting dressed, and she's getting girded, <laughs> she's getting ready to go out there. So to me, it's a good imagery of, are we disciplined? Are we girding our minds? Are we preparing ahead for action? Calvin says, Peter doubles the metaphor, ascribing the loins to the mind. Hebert paraphrases, a disciplined mind is vital for spiritual living. A disciplined mind is vital for spiritual living. I like that. I have a a psychiatrist friend named Kurt Thompson. He's written a couple of books, and one of his uh, favorite sayings is, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And for whatever reason, that it resonates with me. I don't know why, but it it really resonates. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Because we go through life, you know, we're pulled into something, and all of a sudden, you know, it's an email or some distraction. Or my, my wife just got, her, her kids gave her an uh, Apple Watch for Christmas. And uh, it's, it's a wonderfully annoying thing to watch her use it. It's just, you know, all the stuff she's got to learn, all that it can do for her. And, and it's always there. And um, 
Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. I get caught up in stuff too. I mean, I've got four things going on. How many, how do you have like four or five programs on your computer at one time? Some of us, that's the world we live in. And all of a sudden you're, you're doing this project A, but then you're three over doing project L, which is because you got to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. I have to physically, when I study, I have to clear my desk area because uh, everything cl- has a life. It clamors. It distracts me. I go, oh, I got to do that. I, I keep old school, three by five cards over here. And I go, when I go to Costco, I write down the things I got to get because otherwise I'll clamor and then I set it over here. And I go, okay, it's on a piece of paper. I'll look at it later. I got to get, because I've got to focus, I've got to gird myself to pay attention to what I'm paying attention to. How much more in the spiritual life? Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Often during your day when you're busy doing important things, do you say, okay, Lord, what am I doing? What am I paying attention to right now with this client, with this job, with this project? I was in Dallas this past weekend for a friend's funeral, and I stayed with a friend I've known for many, many years. And we had this long conversation one night as we're both in our 60s, and he said, you know, Michael, I, just, I wish I knew my life had a purpose at this chapter. And I find that conversation very common with men over 60. What's my purpose now? It changed. What's my purpose now? And it's, you know, it's cliche. Well, you spend time with your family and your kids and grandkids. That's all great, but what's your purpose? Did you have a purpose before? See, the bigger question is, were we not paying attention to what we're paying attention to. And now we've all of a sudden found out, hey, this, the, runway's, <laughs> the runway's running out. There's not a lot left. So what, how do we do? How, what do we do with it? Set your mind on things of, above, not on the things that are on the earth. You've heard the old saw, some people are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I think it's probably the other way around. We're so earthly minded. I get pulled into it. So the first thing Peter is telling us when we think about this being holy is do you and I, uh, let's just put it simply, do we prepare our minds? Are our minds probably paying attention to what we're paying attention to as a person who's to live a life of hope? The second part of this, he says, this keeps over. Now we're going to see this twice more in Peter's first letter in chapter 4, verse 7, and chapter 5, verse 8. Verse eight. Now, this is not just a warning against drunkenness, which obviously it can be taken that way literally. But the way Peter's using it, I'm going to suggest it's a mental intoxication. Because if I'm on the first part of his injunction here, if this life of hope is to prepare my mind for action to be undergirded, keeping my my focus on Christ, to quote Hebert again, a disciplined mind is vital for spiritual living, and this is going toward a hope then the second thing he tells us is be sober about it. Have a sobriety. What does it mean? Level-headed. A balanced person. Someone not given to extremes. Um, staying on task. Verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Completely is found only here in the New Testament in the way it's used. It means fully or perfectly or completely. Have your hopes fit completely on something. It stresses the demand of Christian hope is firm, is trustworthy, it's no doubt. Most of us, some of us tend to think of hope in hope. I call it the little engine that could theology. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. It's going to be all right, it's going to be right. And we're hoping in this kind of Zen thing. If you've ever gone to your grandson's or your granddaughter's uh, basketball game or volleyball game and the clock's running down and everybody's standing up and it's the winning chance, the winning shot, the winning free throw, whatever it is, it's like this Zen. We think if we all think positive, the ball's going to go to the hoop, you know, and that does. You know, so we, if, that's, that's chicken little, that's, uh, that's the, the train little engine that could. That's hope and hope. Biblical hope is hope in a thing or in a person or in a done deal, to put it in a colloquial vernacular. Our sure hope is in Christ. It's not hope in hope. And what Peter says here is fix your hope completely. Nail it down once for all completely. Not, I hope it's going to work out. Maybe it's going to work out. Probably going to work out. I'll do my part and it'll work out. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a span between what they're living now in this dispersion and in a world that's not their home and this future hope that they haven't yet seen. 
reminded them they looked back from the prophets and said the prophets looked forward to something they never saw. He reminded them we got to see the resurrection. Now, you had to live in hope of the next part of this story. Just like the Old Testament prophets waited for something that many of them didn't see. You got to wait for another hope out in front of you. And we're to fix our hope on that. I love that expression, to fix your hope. I heard Marshall writes, although God gives his grace to Christians here and now, the particular experience of grace that Peter has in mind will be known only at the end of the journey. So we're hoping in this grace that's coming, and we need to We'll talk a little about different kinds of grace, the grace that saves, grace that sustains. But we're hoping that a grace is coming. And that, of course, is our future, or when we die, the eschatology in the future. So we're, grace saves us, grace sustains you, but this is a future grace. It's all the same grace, but it's working effectually differently in our lives. Well, so we have this life of hope. We're to have prepared minds, uh, disciplined minds, spiritual minds, we're to be uh, men and women who keep sober. We have a level-headedness about our situation. And then the second part of this injunction is life of holiness. This is how you live with hope. Now, how do you live with hope and holiness combined? Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a shoe leather practical theology of holiness. It's, it's unusual and this is where I think we get some insight on Peter who is the fisherman become theologian. Where Paul was probably a little bit more of a theologian, a little more erudite. Peter's a little more practical and he deals with heady stuff in the first chapter but this is shoe leather theology. He gives us a good practical understanding of what holiness looks like. Now, the first thing I want you to note, depending on your Bible, I don't know what versions you're using, but if you use uh, the New American Standard, there's a little letter there, or A or a 1, something, and it gives you a literal reading in the margin, and it says, children of obedience. Most versions read, as obedient children. A literal rendering is children of obedience. That's clumsy again in English, but let me tell you why this is important. In the Old Testament, it was common to talk about uh, the nature of a child in relationship to the father. For example, in 1 Samuel 2, 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What a great epitaph. The, son of the sons of the priests were worthless men. Um, what's that, what, what's the imagery there? Is it reflecting on Eli or reflecting on their worthless nature? Reflecting on their worthless nature. They're Eli's sons, but what the, what the idiom is doing is talking about their, the nature of the person. They're worthless people. They, they were raised by a priest. They're worthless sons. In Ephesians 2, 2, we were called sons of disobedience. So it's not that we're son, I'm son of Joseph R. Easley and I'm a disobedient person. I'm a son of disobedience. It's a little wooden, but I think it's important. Children of obedience and this goes, this goes deep and wide. Again, those of you who study Scripture, you can probably think of examples where this plays out. It's, it's quite a fun rabbit trail. Um, I wouldn't do it unless you just like me or weird like to do it. But um, here what you have is obedience is described as the nature that the child is supposed to be ascribing to. We would like to read Eli's godly sons. Uh, and godly, again, is the metaphor, not just that they're, uh, the, the reflection, not just that they're the son of this man named Eli. So here, obedience describes the nature of the believer. Put it another way, obedient children refers to Christian conduct. Children of obedience refers to their character. You see, the di- it's a slight difference, but does it make sense? So on the one hand, it's our conduct if I'm an obedient child. But I'm a child of obedience is talking about my character is one that I want to obey. I don't live to be identified by just being a, a Joseph Beasley's son or this, these are my children. My identification is I'm of obedience. Now that I have a relationship with Christ, now that I'm called in this fashion, I'm called to be holy, he starts with obedience. Most of us who come out of legalistic backgrounds or who have studied grace and law and have gotten 
tangled and snarled. You know, when we talk about obeying, sometimes the hair on the back of our neck stands up a little bit because it's sounding legalistic. It's sounding legalistic. And, you know, I can go back and forth on a lot of this in my own journey, but I find it striking that his lead line is, as children of obedience don't be conformed, he starts talking about obeying as part of a holy life. He's going to explain this with a negative and a positive. The negative, do not be conformed to the former lusts. The only other time you find this word conformed is Romans 12, 2 in the New Testament, where Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So don't be conformed. We've talked about this in here not long ago, conformed versus transformed. So now Peter is saying the same thing. He says, don't be conformed to not the world, but the former lusts. Um, set aside these lusts. Peter, the way he uses the word lust is always negative. There are a couple of times in the New Testament where lust is just a desire, a, a neutral desire, a good desire. The preponderance of times, the majority of times it's used, it means a, a negative thing, a lustful thoughts, sinful cravings, this type of thing. What's interesting in the way Peter explains this, he says, these lusts which were yours in your ignorance before you knew any better, which raises a whole host of interesting questions. Now, this is our base self, our sinful self, our lustful longings. This is man left to himself in his ignorance, craves and does stupid things. But when we know God, something changes. Now, yes, we have a conscience. That conscience isn't always right. Uh, I think of a ruler, if you want to know, how, you know what 12 inches is, we need a standard. And the United States uh, Bureau of Measurement and Management, some acronyms like that long, there's actually a part of our government that has the ruler, if you will. And it's by which that standard, so that if they produce yardsticks or tapes or whatever they are, tapes for construction or for sewing, uh, you want to make sure it's benchmarked against the ruler. So that an inch is an inch, centimeter is centimeter. So, so we have a conscience, and most of us have seen that conscience in a two-year-old. Some 18 months. You can see it sometimes in a kid. They have a conscience because they're looking at a parent and they're going to choose to do something they know is wrong. And when we do things, sometimes our conscience is panged. Sometimes we feel pain. I shouldn't have done that. We walk away from something and our conscience is upset. But our conscience can be seared. Our conscience can be branded. Our conscience can get calloused. But when we come to Christ, what Peter's saying here is these lusts you did in ignorance. I was pulled over years ago in Washington, D.C. on HOV lane. I didn't know what HOV stood for. I'd never seen one before. And I get off the freeway, and there's this whole string of police cars. And uh, I'm pulled over, and I didn't know what I'd done wrong. I wasn't speeding. And this very kind gentleman comes up and says, do you have anyone with you? I go, what, looking for some bad guy or something? No, I don't know what's going on. And I said, no, I'm by myself. And he goes, oh, well, pull over here. And he starts writing. I said, I'm sorry, officer. I'm clueless what's going on. He goes, this is HOV2. I said, I know you think I'm shining you, but I'm not. Uh, I just be from Texas. I don't know what HOV2 means. And he looked at me like I was crazy or lying. And he said, um, it means you have to have two people in your car from this time to this time or more, and you don't have one. I said, actually, I did have a guy dropped off a while ago. He said, it doesn't matter. And so uh, he wrote me a ticket. And I said, I'm just curious. If a person moves to the new town and this ha- I wasn't mad at him. I said, what, what are you supposed to do if you don't know the law? And he tore the ticket off and he said, education by enforcement. Cost me $84 to learn that lesson, what HOV2 means. What do we say? We say, it doesn't matter if you know, don't know the law or not. You're guilty even if you don't know the law. It flips in Christianity. When you come to Christ, then you're accountable. doesn't mean you're not guilty, but you're held to account once it's new to you. Oh, you did those things in ignorance. Now you have an opportunity to not do them anymore. Back to holy living. Now you have an opportunity to change the way you used to live. And most of us can tell stories probably late into the night about when we first came to Christ, things we did we knew were wrong. And how it wore us out. We had guilt and shame and embarrassment and wrestled with the Holy Spirit and just felt torn up. And we confess and apologize and cry and tell friends. And we do it again and again and again. You know, we all have those loops, right? And then we started saying this isn't just, I say it this way, the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. 
A guilty conscience leaves me with guilt and shame and trying to cover it up and make excuses for it. The Holy Spirit is not there just to make you and me feel miserable. He's there to bring us back into relationship. So the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. And Peter is saying, you were ignorant. Now, many of us have seen therapists. And uh, it's, it's more trendy than it used to be, let's say, two, three decades ago. But a lot of times therapists talk about shame and um, being abused. That abuse can be physical. It can be verbal. It can be neglect. I mean, the abuse categories have changed a lot over the years. It can mean a lot of things. And one of the things a therapist will often do with a person who's struggling or hurting is they'll uncover things. I didn't know that was abuse that my father yelled at me. I didn't know that that was neglect that my parents were never around. You're, you're giving me words, and sometimes we can go too far with those things, but you come back to saying, I learned something. I didn't know. Now, what do you do with that information? The gospel weighs in and clarifies the past. The gospel says, okay, things happened to you. You were hurt. You hurt people. You did things. You lived ignorantly. You can change now. Now you know. And part of living holy is understanding Hey, I did, I did things out of lust, out of anger, out of fear, out of self-protection, fill in the blank. But now I know better because I have this Spirit of God indwelling me who's helping me put a value and appraisal to what this Word says to me. And it starts to make me more into the image of Christ, back to His Word, to be conformed not to this lust of the world. So maybe part of the question is, I am no longer fill in the blank. I'm no longer an adulterer. I'm no longer a gossip. I'm no longer an angry, proud person. I'm no longer, because now in Christ I have been forgiven that. Now I understand, and by repentance and the Word and the Spirit, I can change. So the first part is a negative, don't be conformed. The second part is positive, just simply be holy. Now being holy is not stop sinning. For years as a young Christian, I had these, I don't know where we get these ideas, but I had this idea, I wonder if you could live a day without sinning. And then I started thinking, I wonder if you can live an hour without sinning. <laughs> you know, anger thought, lustful thought, revengeful thought, you know, being, being hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, Jesus says, if we think about it, we've done it. Don't you love that? Um, could, I, could, I, could I live it all? And so then I came to the conclusion, no, I'm a sinful creature in a sinful condition in a fallen context, and my life is a, is a mess. And I don't necessarily act out on those sins, praise God, but they run through my head. I mean, how, how often do we hear the expression, if looks could kill? You know, if you give somebody a look could kill, you know, you sinned all day. You murdered somebody. So I can't stop sinning is the point. That's the objective, but I can't do it. So being holy is a relationship, not a religion. And this is where legalism and grace, I think, fold together. Because when I, when I come to Christ, my goal is not to stop being a sinner. My goal is to be like Christ. How are you like somebody? You've got to spend a lot of time with them. The one who's holy is calling us to be holy. Think about it real pragmatically. When I was young, married, maybe you as well, uh, I didn't know what it was. In fact, I was a terrible husband my first year. I know you find that really hard to believe. I was a horrible husband. Cindy will gladly share stories about what a selfish person I was and all the horrible things I did. And 37 years later, she's almost forgiven me for a couple. It's a couple that still kind of irritate her. You know, I had to hang around good husbands to learn how to be a good husband. And when I saw how other husbands treated their wives and adored their wives and did things for their wives and put their wife first, over time I was like, hey, that's a pretty good marriage. That's a little better than what I'm doing. When I had children, same thing. I didn't know how to be a father. So I started looking for good fathers. Guys that had kids that were two or three years older than mine or five years older than mine, what do they do when they're in teen years? And you know, it never stops. I'm always looking for some. So when my daughter's getting married, I go, yeah, I got to be a father-in-law now. What's that look like? So I'm talking to friends of mine who are really good fathers-in-law, saying, you know, and they gave me great counsel. How do I become something I don't know how to be? I have to be around somebody who knows what they're doing. Well, if I want to be holy, if you want to be holy, you got to fill in the blank. You got to be hanging around somebody who's holy. In this case, we have the Holy Spirit and we have his word. The basic nature of holiness is to be separate from the world, from evil, from worldliness, from that which is wicked. And so then you can't, then you have that living in isolation. And there are churches that become separatistic from the world. 
And they're very cloistered. They're very small. They're ingrown emotionally, relationally. They're very tight circles on who can marry whom. There are a lot of churches like that in our country, believe it or not. And they're separate from the world. They spend most of their exposition talking about being separate from the world because the world is evil. And you can stack up a lot of scripture to show the world's an evil place. Don't go out there. But Paul says to be in the world, not of the world. So we have to pull that intention. So how do I live in the world without being corrupted by it? God is separate from. He's exempt from all evil. He's removed from that which is impure. And the beautiful part is, if you're one of his chosen ones, you're identified with that. You see, a little bit of sin makes us completely sinful, but in Christ we are sinless, positionally. I don't understand it all, but it is what Scripture teaches. I grew up under a hard-working dad who was a, a survivor of the Depression. My dad was born in 22, and um, they literally lost the farm in 1927. And this beautiful 120-some-acre farm on the Allegheny River with a silo on it, and it's still there today. Some yuppie bought it and made it a cool house. Uh, but they moved into town and bought a little tiny row house that was like 12 feet wide and maybe 20 feet long, Three boys and the mom and dad lived in this little tiny house. My grandfather was a janitor at a public high school. And uh, all my uh, uncles, my dad and his brothers all did any odd job they could. And they went to the army. All but one. One couldn't get in. And um, the army was the uh, three hots and a cot and the GI Bill. So my oldest uncle and my dad both got the GI Bill, went to college, and did pretty well for themselves. Dad was a hard worker. Dad was a man you could trust. Dad was kind to people. Dad was uh, never met a stranger. Uh, Dad had a lot of isms. He had all these sayings and phrases that um, used to drive me crazy when I was a child. Turn the light off when you leave the room. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I mean, you know, by the inches, this inch, by the yard, it's hard. I mean, he just and he's, he pummeled at my brother and me with these things. We hated him for it. And um, so I, I knew when I grew up, I was going to never say this to my children. So with the greatest joy, when I had children, turn the light off when you leave the room. You know, I said, all the things he told me. One thing he told me that stuck with me was, easily don't lie. I still remember him saying that. Easily don't lie. Because his name was attached to that. And as I raised, you know, children, saying I raised our children, we tried to teach them, easily don't lie. That's no guarantee of anything, but what's the point? To be holy is not just do's and don'ts. To be holy is to be like somebody. I want to be like my dad as a hard worker, as a friendly guy, as a man people trusted who didn't lie. And I'm proud to have had that example. How much more to be holy as he is holy? How much, if you're the best or worst parent in the world, doesn't matter. The, the example is simply it reflects on the father. It reflects on who he is, how his children live. So when we see Christians behaving badly, it reflects on all of us. And that's part of our individual, as we look in the mirror to Christ, am I living in such a way that's not too coarse, it's not too prude, it's not the extremes, but I'm living in a way that you and I are just a little bit different? You're, You're a little kinder with your language, you're a little more careful with what you say and do? You don't jump in when the when, the, when you know, the conversation starts piling on and gets really kind of rancorous and humorous, we can all get sucked into that very quickly. Being holy, as he is holy, reflects on his name. That's part of the injunction. To be holy requires submission to the command of Christ. To be holy requires submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. To be holy requires submission to the word of Christ. So, You've heard me say this lots of time. God's words, God's spirit, God's people. I don't think you can live the Christian life apart from those three influences. I've got to have the word, which is the substantial truth. I've got to have a spirit, which impresses upon me how to apply and understand that truth. And then I've got God's people around me to help me shape that out in, in the real world. We talk about communities and other type of thing. Just people that are walking the same direction, loving Christ, and want to grow and don't want to Sit there going, what am I doing at 60 or 40 or 50 or 20? To be holy requires submission to the Word, to His Spirit, and the one who called us. Being holy, he explains, because he's holy. 
Now, this goes all the way back to Leviticus. I'll give you just three references. In Leviticus 11.24, he talks about unclean and clean foods, and the, and the resounding point is because you have to be holy. You can't eat these unclean foods. Forget the you know, different hallelujah diets and Old, Old Testament diets. That's not the point. What he's saying is, I'm setting these things apart for you not to be participated with because I'm setting you apart to be part with me. So I want you to avoid these things as a regulation. Leviticus 19.2 is about social and religious affairs with, with people. And then he has the epitaph, be holy because I'm holy. And then the last time we see it is chapter 2026 when it deals with the, with the occult and witchcraft and this type of thing. He says that's why you don't meddle with that stuff because I'm holy. That's not holy. So if the book of Leviticus, which is holy to the Lord, that's the story of Leviticus. You read that book and you think it's, this is crazy. All these rules and regulations. It's one of the most powerful lessons in holiness you'll ever read in Scripture. Because he is holy and above all else. You want to have a relationship with him? You have to be holy too. Leviticus proves you can't do it by yourself. Leviticus proves you got to have God to be holy. And it's the same epitaph we read in Peter's language. Be holy for I am holy. Conforming to God's character not the sinful culture. So it's not stop sinning for a day or an hour or a minute. That's a, that's a fool's errand. It's, you know, the closer I am to Christ, God's word, God's spirit, God's people, the more likely I am to say this is how I should live. This is not that hard. Why do we make it hard to be holy? Because it sounds super religious. It sounds, I mean, you never use that word unless you say something like holy smokes or something else, you know. We don't, I mean, think about the irony of that phrase. But it, nevertheless, it's, the separate idea that I'm separate from the world, from evil, from sin, living in and of, but I'm trying to be more like Christ. And he's already mentioned that in his conforming. Well, so we have this idea of hope. We have this idea of holiness. And finally, we have this interesting tension of a life of faith and fear, of fear and faith. Verse 17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. As we start to understand this immeasurable cost of our salvation, we're going to live with a reverential fear. That's the summary of these verses. Let's break it down a little bit. If you address Father, you're calling him by his name. You have a relationship with him. If you address him as Father, then the requirement is live like you're his son. Live like you're his daughter. If you're going to call him Father, then you need to be that holy person. Don't call him Father if you're going to live like hell. Call him Father if you're going to live in a holy, progressive way. Second, he describes him as Father as the one who impartially judges. And this, again, is an interesting uh, picture that Peter develops in ways Paul never even develops. So here's one. We all know the axiom that God always judges righteously. But Peter's using this word impartiality without impartiality impartially judges which helps uh, expand it how often have you watched i don't know if you watch law and order shows or whatever and or if, if you've been in the legal world or you've been part of litigation you know how crazy all this stuff is it's just i mean the stuff on tv is probably mild compared to how most of it actually works out in the courtroom and the juries you know and and if you've been on a jury and you've sat on a jury when it's over you go i don't know how anybody gets a fair trial i did a couple of juries that were like traffic violations and whatnot and and just the jury pool violates everything the judge told them the minute we go in the room. And this is what you're supposed to talk about and decide, da, 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 da. And the first thing, well, I've been on that corner and I saw that wreck happen. The judge said you're not supposed to say that. <laughs> you know, it's like the whole thing went to pot. That's why they'll never put cameras in a juror room. They'd retry things endlessly. So it's a busted system. Now, sometimes it works out. People get a fair judicial consequence. But God always judges rightly. That's like a mind bender. No matter what's happened in your experience and mine, the injustices we've seen or been a part of or have been perpetrated against us or against ones we love, no matter what injustice anyone has experienced, the moment we cross the threshold that he's going to talk about in a second, it's all justly rectified. That pulls into a hope category, doesn't it? It will all be right in the end. Because the one God is the one righteous judge. He impartially judges all. 
Now, there are a number of judgments we don't have time to look into, and some of you perhaps haven't been exposed to the different judges. There's the great white throne, the believer's judgment, the works judgment, uh, unbelieving Israel. All kind, there's all kinds of judgments, five, maybe seven. This one probably is the so-called judgment seat, which is judging the works of the believer. And if you want to jot down a reference or two, that'd be 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 to 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Those are judging our works. And then based on the quality of our works, whether it's burned and the fire hits it and it's reduced to nothing, or there's something left, the dross is burned off and something there, then that becomes, in some way, I can't completely understand or teach or explain an eternal reward. Uh, some believe that eternal reward then is something we give back to Christ, which makes the most sense. I can't prove that by anything in, in the text. That's just sort of, you know, backyard theology. I mean, what would you do with an eternal reward in heaven? Would you wear it proudly on your chest and not be proud? I mean, I don't know how this works, you know. So to me, it seems like these crowns were given back to him. And we sew that together through some, some pretty thin thread, but we get there and say so probably the eternal reward. And, and if you think about it from a, when you see Christ in heaven and you and I are like the man in, in John, uh, Revelation 1, John who falls on his face like a dead man and you got nothing to give him. If you got anything at all, you're going to give it to him. I mean, there, there seems to be some at least emotional kind of sequencing there that makes sense that if he gave us something as an eternal reward, we give it to the eternal king anyway because it's his to begin with, right? So the consequence aspect of this judgment can be a little bit maddening if you go too, too far down the rabbit hole because if you start thinking about your life and mine being judged and uh, that judgment being, our works being judged and it being evaluated by fire and whatever, left, and you're like, man, this person was, they did all this great stuff, this little BB left at the bottom, and somebody else has got this little modest pile and it's hit with fire and it's still there. Yeah, I don't know how, I didn't begin to know how to teach anybody what to do with this. It's just something that we think about and pray about. And what you do ask then is, Lord, I hope what I'm doing means something. I don't think any of us can know for sure. I do think, um, you know, obeying and doing good and being faithful and sharing Christ and loving people, being kind and being a good husband, good father, good wife, good mom, good worker. I mean, doing it faithfully, I think all that matters. One of my professors at seminary would often say, he said, you know, all these guys talking about making A's and B's and 4.0s, goes, you know, I think if you do C in life, C plus, you're above average. And sometimes I wonder if the spiritual life, we work it too hard. That if we're kind and humble and keep short accounts of sin and help people and share Christ and try to raise our kids to love Jesus. And, you know, that might just be well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know. But it, it gets a little maddening when you read some of this. and go, wow, I'm a little afraid when the fire hits my works, what's going to happen? Cindy and I lived in Grand Prairie, Texas for many years and we were by Wycliffe uh, Associates, uh, um, the translator at SIL headquarters. And uh, there was a little woman um, who's with the Lord now. She was in her 90s when she passed away, but she worked on a translation of an African uh, tribal group. And her lexical work was on children's grammars. And she worked her whole life on these projects. And um, there was just one caveat into her life. Uh, A a mutual friend of Cindy's and mine gave this woman a bunch of dresses. She was going through her closet, and she said, take some of these. And the, the woman took them all home, and the next week she brought them all back. And the woman said, well, didn't you take some? Yes, I took one. I found one that I liked. He says, well, take some. No, 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 no. This way I have one to wear while the other one's drying. And she wasn't pretentious about it. She called me once. I don't know why. I was 28, 20, 29-year-old pastor, didn't know anything. And she calls me and wants to come see me, came to see me. And uh, she's, long story short, someone was giving her a trailer house because the Wycliffe compound had these trailer homes that were like on blocks or whatever people could stay in. And the, the couple had passed or something, and they said, hey, do you want this trailer house you can move in? And it was a, a, like a 7 by 12 trailer, not like a, you know, like a Winnebago. It was just one of these little trailers that like, you pull behind a pickup truck and go camping with, up on blocks with a propane tank and an AC outlet. And she, she was tortured to make this decision. I said, why don't you just take it? She said, well, Jesus had no place to call his home. Why should I? And she just up, you know, upbraided me all the time with stuff like that. 
And she wasn't pretentious. She wasn't putting it on me. She wasn't putting it on other people. That's who she was. Died a single woman in her 90s. You know what I'm having? I have this idea that she's going to be on the front row. <laughs> I'm going to be, if there's beyond the cheap seats, I'll be, I'll be probably the tailgate party. <laughs> I'll be in the parking lot watching it on the Jumbotron. I knew her, you know. I don't know how to evaluate it. But I do know that he's concerned about me being holy. And I do know he wants me as his son, if I call him father, to live in a way that reflects that holiness. John Miller writes, the faithful or unfaithful work of the saints will make a difference here and hereafter. That's kind of annoying, isn't it? The faithful or unfaithful work of the saints will make a difference both here and hereafter. Conduct yourself in fear. Now here's the last part we'll look at. Live like strangers in reverential fear. How do you live like a stranger in reverential fear? The idea is, comes from Acts 13.7. That you're living beside something. Listen to Acts 13, 7. The God of his people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. He made them great during their stay. That's the exact phraseology we're looking at at 1 Peter. We're living like strangers with reverential fear. It's like we're not really in the house, but we're by the house. That's the imagery for Israel. That's the imagery for the Christian, the way Peter's using it. You've heard me say more than once, this life at best is a clean bus station. We're sojourners, we're travelers, we're pilgrims. The earth is not our home. We'll be finally home. We'll get there, and we'll be safe and secure in everything we take care of. This is a journey, and we're trying to make it heaven. We're trying to make this... I mean, we're going to build this house, we're going to have kids, we're going to have grandkids, we're going to have the job, we're going to have retirement, we're going to have the vacation package, we're going to have the finances invested. We are working so hard to make this heaven. I think when we step across that threshold, we're going to laugh at all the time we wasted on all the wrong things. Are you kidding me? I worked all that hard for what? And you, I didn't need to do that. Because our trust is in stuff, not in him. Our trust is in the acquisition of how we live life, not him. Our trust is in fill the blank, not him. This part of fear, I think, is, is insightful. It was insightful for me. Maybe it will be for you. Fear has been watered down in English language to mean respect when you read fear in the Bible, to fear God. Let me suggest this is a holy fear. It should be a little tremulous. Fear is a key in 1 Peter. We'll see again and again. Leighton writes, the fear here recommended is a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. A holy, H-O-L-Y, a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. That's pretty interesting. I like that. I'm not supposed to be afraid and like, you know, chew my fingernails and tear, living like the monsters in the closet coming out to get me. A holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. Which may not only consist with the assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and joy, but is their inseparable companion. This fear is not cowardice. It does not debase. It's not shrinking back, I'm afraid of God. It's not debasing fear, he says. But it elevates the mind. It drowns out lower fears. It begets a true fortitude and courage to encounter all dangers for the sake of a good conscience and of that of obeying God. You know, a good conscience is a wonderful thing. If you can go to sleep tonight with a good conscience, that's a wonderful gift, isn't it? Not a guilty conscience, not a shame conscience, not an anger. I have a guilt-free conscience right now. That's a gift. Well, I think it helps us to recalibrate our view of God and to think about this holy fear that Peter's going to talk about again. Well, finally, verses 18 to 21, what you know motivates your faithful living, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your redemption in mine came at an inestimable price. Now, all the valuable metals on the earth, silver and gold, we could say rubies and diamonds and whatever else is important, platinum, it wouldn't matter. It's nothing. It's the precious blood of Christ, the invaluable, inestimable blood of Christ. Later on in chapter 2, he's going to talk about this blood being the payment for our atonement, substitutionary atonement. So this blood is precious. This blood is the means by which we're atoned for. It's inestimable value. Who but God would love people that much that he would give the most priceless thing away for people that didn't even love him? And that's what our salvation cost. Only Christ's blood can redeem the sinner. Finally, Grudem writes, The God whom they are to fear as judge is also the God they are to trust as Savior. That's a good tension. The God we fear as judge is also the God we trust as Savior. You don't hear that taught much, do you? We just hear all the good stuff. The God whom they fear as judge, now this is the works, mind you, not you as a person, but our works, is also the God whom they trust as Savior. He continues, he planned their redemption in the councils of eternity. I love that. He sent forth his Son for their sake. He is the one whom they even now depend on. He raised Christ from the dead and glorified him. And thus, he is the one in whom they place all their trust and hope. The God whom Christians fear is the God whom Christians trust forever. The God who planned and has done for them only good from all eternity. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.